I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is a podcast for the SBS Emerging Writers Competition. The SBS Emerging Writers Competition invites aspiring writers to share their unique stories, with the winner awarded $5,000 to support the development of their storytelling. Head to sbs.com.au forward slash writers to find out more. Hello and welcome to The New Writers' Room, a podcast for emerging writers. My name is Caitlin Chang. I'm Candice Chung. We're two commissioning editors at SBS Voices. We're here today to talk about all of the things that go into memoir writing. Who you love or what you love is really um, defined by who you pay attention to. So today we're looking at writing about desire and intimacy. Caitlin, we were going to dedicate this episode to sex and intimacy, weren't we? We were. (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as we said that, we realised we don't actually run that many stories that are explicitly about sex. No, we keep it kind of um, PG-ish, I'd say. Sexuality, yes, we write about or we rather we publish, but very few stories that are actually full of steamy scenes. Mm. So sorry to pour cold water on the theme right from the start, but what we do want to talk about are the things that actually make sex interesting in the first place. So today we'll be looking at how to write about desire and intimacy, which are the key ingredients to every story about crushes, dating, obsessions and lost loves, and very occasionally happy relationships. Yes, sometimes we cover those too. (laughs) So I guess when you're writing about desire and intimacy, What we want and what we tell ourselves and each other about the things that we want can actually reveal so much about us, which is quite daunting. But how do we do this with vulnerability while also maintaining boundaries? Mm. How do we keep our writing composed while we also express really big, really private emotions? And how do we talk about desire without the fear of who is going to read it? You could write about your crush and then be thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to read it. And Mm. you might not want that to happen, but maybe you do. So, you know, there's a lot of things to consider when you're writing about these intimate thoughts. Mm, Or like when your mom reads it. (laughs) (laughs) What if my mom reads this? Exactly. So with us today is award-winning writer Jessie Tu. Jessie is the author of the poetry collection You Should Have Told Me We Have Nothing Left and her debut novel A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing which won a 2021 Australian Book Industry Award and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. She is the emerging book critic at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and a journalist at Women's Agenda. Jessie wrote her first piece for SBS Voices in 2019. Her most recent story is a lovely meditation on debunking what good writing really looks like. Her refusal to pay more attention to the white male canon and dedicating herself instead to tell the stories of desire by rebels and outsiders. Hi, Jessie, and welcome to the new writer's room. Thanks for having me. So before we start, I'm wondering if you could read out a passage from your latest story on voices for us. Sure. Thank you. 
I give my attention to those who live in bodies that is somehow othered, whose sexuality means they don't benefit from the heteronormative structures of our society, whose ambitions are outside of parenthood or marriage, whose ideologies don't comply with capitalism or racism or homophobia or transphobia. I pay attention to people who, on account of their rebellion, are deemed unpalatable. These people are infinitely more interesting and useful to learn from because they live in those blind spots we continue to teach our children to uphold. I really love that. I guess the first thing I really want to ask you is what interests you most about writing about private desires and intimacy, especially from a female perspective? I think what interests me in that sense is that, well, I see that there's this sort of huge gaping hole when it comes to stories about female private desires Mm -hmm. Um, and there is a privacy that we have to because there's like a huge lack of precedence in terms of what it is that a woman desires because, you know, our history has been built on women um, actively suppressing or just destroying their own desires for, Mm. you know, the men in their lives, for the families that they create. And so I guess my interest lies always in the things that have not been talked about or the things that have not been allowed the space to be publicly discussed, the things that are not, you know, commonly observed. And so I'm interested in whatever thing or object or concept that hasn't had a long history of interrogation Mm. and female desire is something that is still relatively unexplored compared to like things like, you know, the male existential concepts, just one example. So I think my desire comes from an interest which like from a place of needing to work out things that we haven't as women been historically allowed to examine publicly. Mm, absolutely. Does it feel thrilling to go there? I don't know if I would describe it as thrilling. It just feels necessary. Mm. And like everything that I always keep going back to my anger, like I everything <laughs> that I do, I think every day comes from a deep source of anger and like a healthy anger. Like I feel like the more I discuss my work publicly, the more I realize that a lot of people have seen anger, especially from a woman, as this kind of unhealthy, unsavory thing. And I guess like my anger is something that I hope will never diminish as I Mm. get older, because that's really why I do what I do, Mm. because I want to see the world change, you know, in the future. Yeah. And sometimes that anger can be energizing, as you, you know, as you said. Um, Yeah. So I also wonder, uh, to you, what does emotional intimacy look like on a page? Uh, Being unafraid to look at your own thoughts and then kind of just slashing it out on the page. I think many of us use language to shield the truth. You know, I think a Mm. lot of starting writers, I know that myself in my 20s, when I wrote, I used a lot of words because I wasn't confident enough to say what it is that I really wanted to say. Yeah. But there, I think there's a real freedom in, and liberation in actually allowing yourself to just say what you want to say in plain language on the page. And yeah. I think that the best writers don't try and fool or trick its readers. Like yeah. emotional intimacy is almost like a diary or mm. like at least the appearance of a diary. I think some people are not even honest in their own journals. <laughs> yeah. And that's a real shame. Um But emotional intimacy is something that takes, I think, a lot of time to cultivate. And it's hard to just sit with that because we're taught in our daily lives to hide our emotions and Mm. our feelings. That's really interesting that you say that about, you know, using 
you used to kind of use more words and language to kind of cover up your feelings. And you can definitely see that in writers who do overwrite. You can tell that it's not necessarily an honest perspective and often using like paired back language is I think a more honest version of a story and you can convey so much more I think. Yeah absolutely I think um it's like when a young artist maybe trying to use overuse too much color or texture on the palette. Yeah. Because they're compensating for their insecurities like yeah. I think all of us know good readers and I think we're all good readers in this room we know that um the best writers are ones that don't ever use any flowery language. Like, mm. for instance, I'm reading Deborah Levy, um, <laughs> her third trilogy, like her third book of a trilogy about her life um, mm. called Real Estate. And, like, there's literally not one word in there that I have to look up in the dictionary. Mm. But like, every single sentence of hers is like a revelation. It's just so beautiful. And you know that as you get older that the most confident people, they never feel like they need to overhype anything you know, yeah. when you meet them, they never need to be the ones who talk the most in, in a conversation at a dinner party. They mm. just need don't need to exert themselves. And that happens also on the page. Yeah. That's so funny because it's about precision, isn't it? When you say fewer things, it's also about being precise. You're mm. striking the exact right note. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, also means thinking harder, which yeah. is, you know, it's yeah. a lot of work. It's a hard thing to, <laughs> I think it's a really hard thing to master, actually, mm. like not overwriting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in your SBS piece, you said all these Asian women are peripheral characters only to be desired by white men who end up dead or neglected. What do you do with your own writing to actively transform that narrative? I guess um, I try and just like, it's so weird when like you grow up with these stories, right? Mm. And then you put yourself, you kind of like look at yourself and the relative position that you have in terms of what you're consuming. And you're like, but I'm a full human being. Why am I not treated like with as much complexity and profundity as these male characters? Mm. It's so weird. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> um, I'm also just as legitimate as everyone else. Cause you know, you guys, you guys live in female bodies. You would know it's like, I'm just as smart or just as clever or just as, you know, anything yeah. as these guys, dudes. And yet like, we're always kind of just like not ever given a good, even not, not even given one good line mm-hmm. yeah. in the stories. And it's just like, it's so weird. So I guess like from that confusion, I try and make myself I kind of try and put someone who has like a similar face to mine into these narratives Mm. um, to subvert the narratives that we have historically grown up with Mm. and treat myself as the most important character so that Mm. um, the generations coming after us, I I wouldn't want like another young Asian woman to grow up feeling like she never has the same kind of agency that Mm. just normal white dude has. Yeah. yeah. And I guess a lot of that is achieved by paying attention as well, which in your piece, I guess it's also what you were talking about, you know, what you choose to pay attention to, which is the female desire, the female body. Yeah, I love that. I feel like recently, like maybe it's something to do with becoming like someone in your 30s, but like I really mm-hmm. tried to figure out what it is what really is love? Because, you know, we've mm. had like 
centuries of um, male philosophers, white male philosophers, to try and like um, conceptualize this idea of love. But um, I'm still trying to figure out what love is. And I think at the moment, my working theory is that. Um, it, it, <laughs> I it, love it, that working theory. <laughs> yeah. Is um, attention. Like, yes. when it's all about attention, like who you love or what you love is really um, defined by who you pay attention to. Oh, so true. Yeah. yeah. That's what I think. And I just want to spend my life paying attention to those people who have not historically been given that attention. I love it because what's more valuable, right? Mm. Our attention like is pretty much the ultimate thing that we can give to someone yeah, or something, exactly. yeah. which is really precious. Mm. Yeah. And so what's, I guess, what's the hardest thing for you when you are writing about subjects of our desire or crushes and things like that? Like what, what's the toughest bit? Um, I think the most kind of uncomfortable part um, mm-hmm. is kind of confronting my own shame about the amount of attention that I used to give to men. Yeah, and like right. men who just never paid any attention to me because like I wasn't a blonde woman who had like a desirable body. Like I've always felt a lot of shame and I think I still do um, from not being white mm. and really feel like shame about that, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't want to admit that because I want, I really admire kind of people who don't live in white bodies who are like totally proud about the kind of marginalized bodies that they live in because I haven't reached that point yet in my life. Like mm. there are still moments where I feel shame and inadequacy of the fact that I'm not white and that's hard to confront because um, I don't want to admit that, but mm. I, I, I don't know why I do it. I think, I guess I do it because I want to be honest with the world because I've always found a lot of strength in hearing public figures talk about the most shameful parts of them. And so I guess in a way I would like to do that as well. Mm. That's, that's quite a, I guess, confronting thing for you to put in your writing as well, but perhaps a bit kind of cathartic and maybe a bit of a process? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to actually think about this because Larissa Pham recently wrote about how like um, in the past she, she was like kind of turning, you know how there's this kind of public theory that um, you should turn your grief somehow into art. Yeah. She has this conflict like our pain or sorrow or grief or trauma shouldn't be aestheticized. Mm. Yeah. And like, yeah, I'm still trying to think, yeah, maybe I shouldn't turn every grief in my history into something that's like beautiful into a work of art because that that doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. Mm, yeah. I guess it has the risk of it losing its meaning as well. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you are writing about desire and female desire, how, and, you know, love, how do you kind of, how do we stay away from the kind of, cringy, I guess, sentimental territory. Yeah, um, I find a lot of sentimentality comes off like the whole self-help books. Yeah. Um, they often are like that, like Glennon Doyle kind of books. I just like ah, roll my eyes so much. <laughs> <laughs> books like that. So you're not saying like positive affirmations every morning when you get up? <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. Um, it just kind of like um, all those kind of books just always make me cringe because they're so um, – they treat trauma and grief as this kind of one-dimensional thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think I avoid it because I just try and stay away from cliches. Yeah. And I think everyone knows if you're a very observant person, which I think most writers are, mm-hmm. you know what a cliche sounds like. Yeah. 
So when you feel yourself slipping into a cliche, um, I just try and like delete it on mm. the page. Mm. Well, again, it's kind of about being quite vigilant yeah. and yeah, quite vigilant with yourself, your language, isn't it? Yeah, um, vigilant when you do the editing process. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So write, write, and go for your life and write. Yeah. But editing. Then you've process. got to budget your words. I always find that you know when a phrase or a sentence isn't working and then it's always like, oh, I should delete this, but I don't know. I always feel like I don't want to, so I just often paste them into another Word doc oh, that's, that's just sitting so there. Funny. <laughs> it's just like this little kind of repository yeah. for things that don't work, but I'll just leave them there. And Yeah, I think I do that there. too. I have like yeah. a document opened called Bits. Scraps. 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 They might work at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I've ever opened back those bits documents up, <laughs> yeah. but it felt better at, yeah, this, totally. at the time. Yeah, 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 because then you turn something from those scraps into something like even better. Mm. So, Jesse, I know you're a fan of Garth Greenwell, who is a master at writing about sex and desire and also without ever slipping into sentimental territory. Mm. Um, what do you like most about his work and who else do you look to for inspiration? Yeah, I am, um, like, if he was, like, a leader of a cult, I would follow him. <laughs> he's so anti-cult. He's someone who just always is, like, he teaches me to think for myself. He has this, like, amazing talk with Brendan Taylor yes. about queer beatitudes, and it really is just, like, this sense that, like, I've listened to that talk literally 25 times. <laughs> yeah. My religion, and my religion is, like, um, he always says, like, um, never fall into any one type of way of living or thinking or writing. Like, um, mm. and he teaches me that living queerly through the world really means like being allergic to definition mm. and not subscribing to any one concept of anything and allowing yourself to think and build your own idea of what it means to have a good life in this world or what it means to be a good writer, you know. Mm. But mostly um, why I love his writing is because his sentences are honestly like seeing something otherworldly like when I read his sentences it feels like magic it feels like the most amazing it's kind of like the same thing I feel when I read the sentences of Deborah Levy they're mm. so simple and yet so like majestic and honest I think that's what I love yeah and there's something about freshness as well like he's so good at casting a fresh eye on something that you wouldn't have thought about before yeah yeah which is really lovely so I like that he also talks about desire in the way that you know he sees it as a form of communication that sex and desire is part of telling about who we are yeah and because like he's gay and like he grew up in like I think rural Kentucky I think where like mm -hmm. his body was so politicized yes he wasn't allowed to express his desires in the way that hetero people mm. can. So, like, mm -hmm. um, so much about him letting go and doing what he wants to do with his flesh is so bound up in meaning that he gets to create himself. Mm. I think that is just such a, like, for me, like, I'm not a gay man, but I just something about that that really connects with me as an Asian woman. I don't really know what it is, <laughs> but um, hmm. I guess it's just something I'm still trying to think about. Yeah. 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 A lot about agency. 
as well, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. Jesse, writing is, it's, it's kind of a second career for you. You used to be a teacher. What pushed you to make the jump into writing as a career? I'd credit it to, I would, I would credit it to like one moment in 2016 when I was teaching at a Catholic boys school in like the northern suburbs of Sydney. And yeah. I had these two white women colleagues who were extremely, like they're now one of my best friends, yeah. but they were like, <laughs> they're in their fifties or sixties now. Yeah. Um, but they always were supportive of like, cause when I was a teacher, I never told anyone I was writing right. or I was a writer because like, it was just my private thing that I didn't want to announced to anyone and like teaching was a job I just went in and out of Um, Mm. like I would go to school and then like not say anything about my personal life and come home but these two women were interested in the world and so Mm. therefore they were readers right they were active readers and then through our conversations I would share with them the fact that I was like a keen writer Mm. and then they would actually just like be genuinely interested in me and from that like when someone takes interest in you if you're someone who grew up like me with not having people interested in you, you suddenly feel like, hey, actually, I might actually mean something. Yeah. So like their interest in me and the way that they took interest in me made me legitimize myself. Mm. Like made me think, oh, um, I actually might be able to do something with my writing. That They were the ones, like it was one day in November at the end of the school term when they were like, they read a short story of mine and they both, we were in like their storeroom, their art teachers. Mm. And they said to me, they looked me in the eye and they were very serious and solemn. Mm. They were like, Jesse, you know, you can actually do something with your life with this. Wow. The conversation really changed it for me. I love that. I love that. It's kind of once again going back to the attention thing, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like when someone takes interest in you or like, you know, what you do, it's almost like a sense of dignifying yeah. what yeah. you're doing, yeah. giving it legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you should be able to do that yourself, but sometimes it um really does it make all the difference. Yeah. I mm. think sometimes you do need those people outside of you to say, Hey, um, what you're doing is important. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if like, you know, white male writers have that feeling of, oh, oh yeah. no one wants to hear my voice or if they just, they, I, I would love to have the confidence of someone like, cause I would be the same. Oh, I don't know if my stories are worth, not worth, but like, I don't know if they're good enough or, you know, I, think, I would love to just be able to like, yeah, you want to hear this. This is for yeah. you, you know. I think that's where it starts, yeah. like, you know, yeah. in, you know, very confident white guys, like, heads. Yeah. They're like, everyone's waiting to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think the reason why they are so confident is because they literally, the world has so many, like, there's a, a infinite abundance of stories that center them mm, that they yeah. literally, like, they become 25 years old and it's so normal for them to say, of course, the world would be interested. Yes. Because every story that I've read in high school, we spent years studying, centered someone who looked like me. So, of mm. course, yeah. my story is important. Yeah. You know? Exactly. That's mm. so true. So, I wonder if you could also share any tips with new writers who might want to become more open on the page. Um, oh, yeah. Um, I think the most useful thing that I've learned writing about intimate private things is um, not judging yourself, like Mm -hmm. being able to just write whatever it is you want to write and then kind of say that is okay. Like it doesn't need to be um, like in your head. I think in writers' heads, they always have uh, someone they aspire to be, you Mm -hmm. know, like I think um, a lot of people have James Baldwin or Shakespeare or Virginia Woolf or one of those canonical people like in their heads and they always think, oh, well, my writing is not like theirs. 
I think um, the most powerful thing you can do as an emerging writer, for me, when I was still starting out as a writer, and I still do this today, is to just get rid of that comparison, is to just say, um, it doesn't matter. This is not um, this is not Virginia Woolf. This is not Elizabeth Barrett Browning. But so what? Mm. Like, I don't have to aspire to be these people. Um, mm. I'm writing and this is good. And and I and I think it's important to remember that like people like F. Scott Fitzgerald, he also had a lot of doubt. Mm. You know, I'm sure Shakespeare had a lot of doubt. Like all our greatest writers had a lot of doubt. They didn't know that they were going to be the people who we now worship. You know, yeah. so mm. um, just giving yourself that compassion, saying this is my truth, and I'm going to decide this is what I think is good, and then kind of just letting go and letting the writing speak for itself that way. Mm, that's great. So giving yourself permission to create. Yeah, exactly. That's the most important step, mm. I think, yeah. That's amazing. Hopefully that inspires um, some people to enter the SBS Emerging Writers Competition, which is, you know, why we're, we're chatting to you today and, and chatting to a number of writers just to kind of give people the confidence just to put their story on the page and then see what happens. So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us it's always a pleasure to chat jesse yeah likewise thanks so much guys thank you so much jesse that's it for today's show next time we will speak to community worker and writer nadine shamali about bringing characters to life in telling my story i was also telling part of her story but i was very much telling my perspective which may not have been her perspective at all the New Writers' Room is produced by Caitlin Chang and Candace Chung and edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Teutsch. You can find SBS Voices on Facebook or on Twitter. Entries for the SBS Emerging Writers' Competition close on September 16th and you can find out more by heading to sbs.com.au forward slash writers. And if you'd like to pitch a story to SBS Voices, you can email voices at sbs.com.au. The official anthology of the 2020 SBS Emerging Writers Competition is out now at all good bookshops. Roots, Home is Who We Are, published by Hardy Grant Books in partnership with SBS, features 30 of the best entries to inspire you to get writing.